It's more than likely that most of us rely on an increasingly faulty memory which could introduce an element of doubt into the tales of our youth. But I'm 99% sure that this podcast is 99% factual. In case you're trying to remember how to do mental percentage calculations, that means I'm 98.01% sure this is correct. Hello, I'm Richard Paul Jones, PJ to my friends, and welcome to All The Jam, nonsense from the fringes of rock and roll. I'm on tour with royalty this week, and if memory serves, initial exposure to the band left me wondering, to paraphrase Dire Straits, if it's what I call rock and roll. If you think you've heard some of what follows in another episode, you may well have. A Venn diagram of my life would look not unlike the sort of light show that accompanied psychedelic bands of the 1960s. That's to say, a mess of different coloured bubbles swirling and overlapping each other. Trying to describe the sequence without doubling back in time is almost impossible. Having said that, if time travel was possible, we might return to the days of our youth and tell our younger selves to pay more attention, and maybe take notes, as this was the only time we would be this age, and it would be a shame just to cruise through it without touching the sides. But physics tells us that time only travels forwards, and so we don't get this chance. Or do we? I know my parents said a lot about paying attention and other stuff which I mostly ignored, and I suspect that I'm not alone in this. But I grow more like my parents as time passes, and I suspect that I'm not alone in this either. So is it possible that our parents are indeed us from the future? Their inability to influence our behaviour may be nature's way of overcoming the paradoxes of time travel. But enough of this speculation. Let's go back to the 1970s. In the early 1970s, rock and roll was a distinct genre. Although it was named in the 50s, a combination of the contraceptive pill, cannabis and the hippie thing made a disconnect between the 1950s slightly naughty version, think Elvis the Pelvis, the bequiffed Gene Vincent, the kiss-curled and chunky Bill Haley, and the 1970s revolutionary counterculture product. The pop and rock bands of the 1960s had established the three guitars and drums format. You could add keyboards, but that was getting a bit arty. And the Stones showed that the singer didn't have to play an instrument, making way for Roger Daltrey, Rod Stewart, Robert Palmer and the like. These bands and rock gods strutted their stuff and revelled in the adoration and riches which were showered upon them. The age of sex and drugs and rock and roll had arrived, though it would take another five years or so for Ian Dury to encapsulate it so succinctly. In essence, rock and roll is the driving 4-4 rhythm and macho posturing. It's just a pity about the ballads. But ballads had their purpose, of course, in giving the drummer a bit of a break. They also showed the lead singer to be a deep and sensitive chap. Some girls in the audience would be enchanted. No, he's really lovely when you meet him in person. These were often the same girls who could be persuaded into a quick shag after the show. After all, sensitivity is a relative concept. Then there were the boy bands, aimed at teenage and preteen girls, the teeny boppers. They included the likes of the Monkees, David Cassidy, Donny Osmond and the Bay City Rollers. These acts were the products of managers and record companies. No one from the band's management side was interested in the music to any degree more than it pressed the buttons of the record-buying public. And they just kept churning out more product until the band broke. And then they had to make a new one. The bands took the majority of the fame, drugs and abuse, while the managers took the majority of the cash. So nothing new there then. There was also the halfway house of glam rock, 
with the likes of Mark Bolan and David Bowie as Ziggy Stardust at one end and Sweet and Gary Glitter at the other. Some of this was quality rock and roll with a lot of theatrical sparkle and some was just crap with a lot of bling tacked on. Of course these subgenres were not strictly defined. The band Mud, for example, had their heads firmly in 1950s teddy boy imagery, but they behaved more like glam rockers in that they were as much about visual spectacle as they were about songs and music. Sweet were just shit, but satisfied the record-buying public's desire for thinly disguised songs about knobs, shagging and vandalism. And they were backed with tunes of such mind-numbing banality as to put most jingle writers to shame. These were the big beasts who filled the airwaves and the larger theatres to sate the public's willingness to pay good money for mediocre ditties. The theatrical and progressive rockers, unknown to much of the music radio audience, like Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, Genesis, Jethro Tull and Yes, produced more thoughtful and accomplished work and would soon move to sports stadiums to accommodate their growing audiences. But most gigs weren't in the thousand-seater theatres and stadiums. The UK pub, club, college and the growing festival circuits were alive with hundreds of bands which would never be successful in the charts and were likely to avoid the pitfalls of global fame and extreme wealth. They were the bands that people came to see week in and week out. Most bands were in it because they loved writing and performing quality songs and great tunes, or loved standing up on stage being looked at. Either would do. And the punters came for the usual reasons. They wanted to relax after work, hear good or sometimes just familiar music, drink, strut their stuff and get laid. Some bands were great to listen to, some were great to look at, and some were great to dance to. Some would combine a couple of these features, and very occasionally there would be one that was all three. In 1974, I was working for a band called Hustler, think gambling, not porn, who got close to the Holy Trinity. The band looked pretty good on stage. Well, at least they tried, and that was more than many of the denim and t-shirt rockers on the circuit. The songs were probably above average, though in retrospect they sound a little more self-conscious and soul-bearing than I recognised at the time. The tunes were memorable, and the tempos and arrangements were great for dancing, stomping, or banging your head from side to side inside a bass bin, depending on your tastes. A nice little boogie band, as their manager remembered them when we met 20 years later, though he completely failed to remember me. Whatever you call it, it was not pop. It wasn't teeny. It wasn't glam. We called it rock and roll, and it was more than a genre. It was a lifestyle. Many of us who worked full-time on the road described the job as better than working for a living, though very few people I knew who had real jobs worked half as hard as we did. Except for the larger venues, there was little in the way of what is now called local crew. There might be a technician at a club or an enthusiastic punter who wanted to help. But for the most part, the band's road crew did it all. I can't count the number of times we would finish packing up after a gig, drive overnight to another town, sometimes in another time zone with another currency, grab an hour's sleep in the truck, set up the PA and backline, sort out whatever lighting was available at the venue, wait for the band to arrive, sound check them, do the gig, pack up and do it all over again. Most of the gear broke down a lot and always needed fixing before, during and after the show, which used up more of what might otherwise have been a bit of free time. And then there was that break between the sound check and showtime, which I should have used to grab some sleep, but I'd usually end up in the bar having a beer. And this is where I would quite frequently be asked by a punter, so, what's your day job? 
Just because they were relaxing at a gig after a day's work, they assumed we too had real jobs and did this in our spare time. Of course the idea that we were just having fun was intensified by the fact that people in the music business have a reputation for sleeping in during the day and going to clubs at night. And there's some truth in this. When we're not working, we often have friends who are working, and who doesn't want the biggest audience possible? So as long as it doesn't actually cost them anything, they will often put us on the guest list. Of course it's bad for business to put people on the guest list who would otherwise pay. But we wouldn't. I mean, there are limits. But there's a quid pro quo, and we appreciate their support at our shows. And besides, it's an opportunity to catch up with mates, go scouting for girls, in the shagging sense, not the singing around the campfire sense, and doing a bit of networking. After all, we're always looking for a better gig. Hustler had a single bubbling under in the charts. The song was Get Out of My House, though colloquially it was pronounced Get Out of My House, and was what is known as a novelty record. It was about a young man being accosted by his girlfriend's father, who tells him, No daughter of mine's going out with an hippie or a scruffy-looking bleeder like you, and throws him out. The song goes on to make a comparison with another long-haired, peace-loving bloke from 2,000 years ago who would have welcomed him in. Quite a nice thought, really. The song had a driving rhythm, loud cockney vocals, and sounded good on the small speaker of a transistor radio, which is where most of the target audience heard most of their music in the days before Walkmans and iPods. Touring was all about building a fan base to sell records. The average professional band would tour the hundreds of pubs and clubs across the UK endlessly. This process was sometimes referred to as the tour of the toilets, which is an indication of how glamorous it was. But it was all about spreading the word and using whatever media was available. TV was the ultimate goal, but there were few TV shows with live music and certainly no dedicated TV music channels. Most media exposure was in the music press and plays on the radio, and for most bands, there was precious little of either. The other major opportunity for getting noticed was touring as support for a well-known band. Supporting a bigger act exposes the band to a bigger audience and gets additional media attention. Hustler's management brought a place on the Queen tour just as their single, Killer Queen, was starting to chart. Queen themselves had supported Mott the Hoople on a similar-sized tour only a few weeks earlier. And as the Sheer Heart Attack album rose in the charts, their management pushed them back out on the road, headlining their own tour of 2,000-seater theatres. The value to Queen of a buy-in was a combination of reducing the cost of the tour, getting a support act with a following who would pad out ticket sales, and having an act on the bill which wouldn't show them up. The value to Hustler was the chance to promote the new album to a wider audience and piggyback on Queen's press coverage. Decades later, having risen to the height of planet-conquering legends, it's difficult to imagine a world where I'd not heard of Queen. But the name was enough to put me off. I mean, for Christ's sake, Queen? Sounded more than a bit poncy to me. Freddie was not out gay at the time, but after the obvious association with the monarch, the word Queen conjured up images of female impersonator Danny LaRue, the camp TV game show host Larry Grayson, and John Inman in the double entendre masterclass that was the hit sitcom Are You Being Served? In other words, the very antithesis of macho rock and roll. And if you were in any doubt, you only had to see the act to question which team Mr Mercury was batting for. A couple of nights before the first gig, I was at a friend's flat watching Killer Queen on top of the pops. Anyone with a youthful pulse at the time will have 7pm Thursday nights encoded in their metaphorical DNA, 
It was a must-watch programme in those days of no MTV and bugger all else in the way of live music on the box. And as I watched this bunch of fops strutting and pouting their way through the song, I was almost mortified. Not quite, but almost. This lot were definitely pretty boys in the pop business, and certainly not what I called down and dirty rock and roll. But what did I know? As it turned out, the tour was a lot of fun. I even got to like most of the songs, but still felt a bit guilty. And of course they were still quite a bit poncy, with all Freddy's posing and camping it up. But there were lots of young girls who mistook this for glam rock, and panted adoringly in his direction from the front of the stage. This was double good for the crew, as it is always good to have a load of steamy girls around, and we had the added bonus that the object of their desire was simply not available. For a support act, there's a lot of hanging around. This was partly because we always came near the bottom of the list of important things on the tour, and partly because we only had half the usual workload. This was because all we had to do was set up our stuff ready to put it all on stage. Normally, we'd have the back line, a PA system, maybe some lights, a bit of set dressing and the record company's merchandising display. On this tour we used Queen's PA and lights and so the initial setup took an hour at most. Arriving at the venue in the morning, we had to unload our back line, set up the amps, drums and keyboards somewhere out of the way backstage, while Queen's touring crew set up the stage for the headliners. Queen would then sound check. This often turned into rehearsal and often took up as much time as there was. When they finished, we had to rush our gear on stage, set up double quick time and try to squeeze in a bit of time on stage for the boys before the punters came in. On the off chance that Queen decided to finish early, we had to be ready, as our band would be more than a little miffed if they missed the opportunity for a decent sound check, which for us meant a lot of waiting in the wings. But the novelty of hanging around wears off quickly, so I'd get involved in setting up for Queen. Nothing too trying, you understand usually setting up microphones and running the cables around the stage. One of Freddie's trademarks was the SM58 microphone on a stick. For a man whose public persona was supposed to be classy and refined, or what passed for it in 1974, this piece of equipment was the very antithesis. Put bluntly, it was a spit-encrusted health hazard. The wire mesh ball which makes this the iconic vocal microphone was clogged with accumulated oral detritus. I'm surprised that the vocals managed to get through the crust to the internal workings of the thing. And it stunk if you got too close to it. Halitosis is too mediocre a word to do it justice. It was closer to germ warfare. Maybe even Freddy found it unpleasant. Which might explain why he had it on a long stick. Anyway, Freddy was off on Planet Star for the most part, and we didn't see much of him outside of showtime. Probably too busy polishing his pretty cabinet in his apparently Japanese-inspired hotel suite. One night in Glasgow he ventured into the hotel bar and bought a round for the crew. For some reason, which no one could fathom, the drinks just kept on not arriving, and eventually we all went to our rooms. Around 4am there was a knock on my door and room service delivered a couple of drinks, courtesy of Mr Mercury. It felt kind of bizarre, but I wasn't wasting a perfectly good double scotch. I can still feel the choking sensation as I took a gulp and can still hear my throat and stomach screaming, oh for fuck's sake, we're trying to sleep. Touring was less paranoid in those days. We didn't have much in the way of passes, and merchandising wasn't a big thing, and our tall t-shirt would usually get you in, as they weren't sold to punters. I don't remember there being any security people, just a stage doorman, more accustomed to accepting flowers for Peggy Ashcroft or Neville Coward, and maybe having to see off top-hatted stage door Johnnies looking to cop a feel of a chorus girl. 
There was certainly no paramilitary security goons protecting the asset, or the intellectual property paranoia which is now common on major tours. This is how I was able to wander on stage with the camera. One day I took a role during Queen's soundcheck, four of which I would sell back to the band 40 years later. Each one would earn me more than I was paid for the whole tour in 1974. It's lucky I wasn't in it for the money. I still have a tour t-shirt somewhere. It's pinkish purple with a now-faded Queen logo rather badly silkscreened across the chest. It was in a sad state last time I saw it, all grubby, with a rip in the sleeve, and a patch of dark red lead oxide from where I'd been wearing it while working on the car. But I was pretty hard up in the 70s, and everything had to last. I must have worn it for several years before it became more interesting as an artefact than useful as a garment. Maybe if I'd known that Queen would become the legendary act they are, I would have looked after it better, but I didn't. So tough. We all needed to make money between tours, and I had any number of fill-in jobs, including delivery of electrical switchgear and later lingerie, which is the background for my seminal work, The Knicker Man Cometh. More of that later, maybe. A few weeks before the Queen tour, I'd been out in the Lee Valley delivering some electrical parts to a small factory on what was to become the 2012 London Olympic Park. I noticed a machine with the words yo-yo scrawled on it and asked what it did. It turned out to be a yo-yo string winder. Professional yo-yo strings are made with a loop at the end of a length of twisted yarn. The yo-yo can spin in this loop and it's the ability to spin that is the basis of most yo-yo tricks. Being something of a yo-yo fan, I asked if they would make me some extra length strings. A few days later, and to my great surprise, I received a dozen in the post. I usually had a decent yo-yo with me to help while away the hours of boredom. My favourite was a Lumar Professional for the geeks. On the Queen tour, I also had the extra long strings with me. A yo-yo with an extra long string not only needs height to drop from, but also room to swing back and underneath your feet, so that you can get enough spin on it for tricks. There are not many places where you can use a yo-yo with a 3 metre string, but if you're looking for somewhere, theatrical balconies are ideal, assuming there are no incredibly valuable Art Deco light fittings attached to the underside, as there were at Finsbury Park Rainbow, but that's another story. Another reasonably good place turned out to be my room at the Norfolk Royal Hotel in Bournemouth, which had a balcony and where I spent a while yo-yoing into the void below. I severely mistimed one swing, and there was an almighty crack as it hammered into the window of the room downstairs. This was followed a few seconds later by a visibly shocked Roger Taylor appearing on his balcony. For some reason I've always assumed that Queen's drummer had been indulging in afternoon delights with a friend, but of course he may just as easily have been on perfectly legitimate rock drummer business. Regardless, he looked up with that what the fuck was that expression, and I looked down with what I hoped was a what, me? look of innocence, and then blew it by explaining that the string on my yo-yo was longer than I expected before ducking back inside the room, leaving Mr T more bemused than informed. There was a girl from Sheffield who followed the tour for the first few gigs. She was determined to lose her virginity to Freddie, and we tried to explain that this was unlikely, but she insisted. She managed to blag lifts in the truck and floor space with various members of the crew in the band's hotel, with the inevitable result that one of the crew eventually fulfilled the role she'd been reserving for Freddy. Nonetheless, she was determined that our Fred would be second. One morning, she joined me at breakfast and said she was nearly there. Freddy's manager had promised to introduce her to the man himself and had told her that Freddy would definitely fancy her. The condition was she would have to shag the manager first, 
just to make sure that she wouldn't disappoint our glorious frontman. She was pleased to add that she'd passed the audition the previous night. She didn't seem too concerned that this now meant that Freddie would be batting at number three. It all seemed very unlikely, as I was fairly sure that the manager was not that sort of chap. I tried again to point out that the promised union was most unlikely, but she was insistent and described the manager's limo, as if this would prove that all was as she'd described. And I must say, it certainly sounded right. She then looked around the room and pointed him out. Delusion is a terrible thing, but it fell to me to tell her that the reason he was in a flash limo is that he was the chauffeur and she shouldn't expect an introduction to Mr Mercury any time in the near future. Eventually she accepted this, and a little later we passed Sheffield where she lived. We dropped her off near her home at Round Hay Park, a more experienced, and one hopes, wiser girl. The tour took us back to London where we carried on with our intricate lives, and time passed as it does. It's difficult to describe how different things were before mobile phones, computers, the internet, social media, and music wherever and whenever you wanted it. All this touring took place in what we would now perceive as some form of splendid isolation. We just couldn't do it like that these days, and we wouldn't want to. But I'm glad we did. And now it's 2021, and much of the detail has faded. But I remember the girl from Round Hay Park quite clearly, and wonder what she makes of it all now. In fact, I sometimes wonder what I make of it. Anyway, that's about it for now. So, take care. Look after yourselves. Look after your friends.